Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with William Burton McCormick, the author of Lenin's Harem, a novel that, despite what you may imagine from the title, deals with an elite Latvian military unit during World War I and the early years of Soviet power. Reading this novel was the first time I'd heard about this particular element of what the historian Peter Holquist has called Russia's Continuum of Crisis, by which he meant the entire period of war and revolution that ran from about 1900 to the 1930s. So I'm particularly looking forward to finding out more during this interview. With richly detailed description and action, Lenin's harem tells its story through the eyes of Viktor Rooks, a young Baltic German living in Courland, a province of the Russian Empire that will soon become part of the country now known as Latvia. When the book opens, Viktor is 11 years old. Chapter 1, December 1905, Courland. My brother always said they were watching us, from the fields or the forest or roadside, wherever they did their chores. I never gave it much thought. He was the heir, and they were his concern. I, heir to nothing, could pardon watchfulness. What happened afterwards, though, even Jesus would not forgive. While our parents entertained the guests at the two-day Christmas ball inside, I sat on the manor's steps that evening distributing glasses of champagne to late arrivals, well-wishers, and friends who'd enjoyed a walk in the crisp winter air of the Corland countryside. Unchaperoned for most of the night, I'd frankly had more than a few glasses myself, too much for an 11-year-old boy. It was in those later hours that I caught the voices on the wind. Far down the road, in the hollow, I could hear the singing of the working folk, those Latvians who spent their days farming the land for our family and the other Baltic barons. Their Christmas songs drifting between frost-covered fir trees, harmonies moving slowly along as unseen carolers pass through the night. Voices, it seemed, from another world, one that touched ours daily but remained forever closed. How I wished to understand those lettish songs. With little to entertain me at the party, I got off the steps and found the old highway leading toward the peasant farms. Sipping champagne, by the time I reached the little thatch and log farmstead at which the carolers gathered, I was slightly cold, reasonably drunk, and completely surprised at the spectacle before me. And now, please welcome Bill McCormick, who is on the line from Ukraine, ready to tell us what Victor saw. Uh, before we get to that, though, Bill, I'd like to hear a bit about your background. First of all, hello, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in a little town called Boulder City, uh, about 30 miles outside of Las Vegas. Um, I was born in Maryland, but uh, when I was seven years old, moved out there, and that's still, that's still my home to this day, unless I'm in Europe, such as Ukraine now. And uh, how did you come to write fiction? I've always been a storyteller, and I've always been very interested in, in uh, writing fiction. I uh, have a history of oral, uh, oral storytelling on stage. I've done it a couple of times in Washington, D.C. Uh, and I, I always liked the idea of taking uh, the spoken story and putting it down on page. And what were you doing before? I mean, you say that you did it on stage, which is really interesting. Was that part of your job, or was this a hobby that oh, you were Oh, no, completely a hobby. And, uh, uh, it was just something that I did for because uh, I enjoyed it. And uh, I certainly didn't, didn't do it to any large audiences. Sometimes I was the only one in the room, practically. But uh, 
I enjoy telling stories, and that's that's where the the fiction writing comes from. It's a way of preserving your story, I suppose. So, what were you doing as a profession? Uh, uh, well, I worked in the uh, in the video game business and in the educational software business for many years. Uh, in the height of the dot com world, I had my own company, um, and then I was working as a consultant in Washington D.C. Uh, when the idea of writing this novel first came to me. So tell me more about that. What, how did you get uh, to writing? I mean, first of all, were you writing other things, or did you actually start with this novel? Was this your first big writing project? This was my first big writing project. Uh, you know, I had a couple of short stories that I was playing around with, but uh, I wanted to write a sort of a a thriller novel initially, uh, and I wanted to set it somewhere in Eastern Europe. Um, and I sort of arbitrarily said, well, what about Latvia? And the Latvian Museum is in Rockville, Maryland, which wasn't too far from where I lived at the time. And I went there and I bought uh, several books on, on Latvia. And uh, the more I learned about the region, and the, specifically the Latvian riflemen and their roles uh, in the Russian Revolution and uh, their ultimate fate uh, and the fate of their people, I was so moved that I sort of tore up the little thriller that I was going to write and decided to write a, a much more serious historical novel. And uh, that's really where it came from, is uh, the events of uh, in this country at that time, I think nobody knows uh, in the English-speaking world. And uh, to me, it was such a powerful story that uh, I just had to write it. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I, I would imagine that actually a lot of people are barely aware of where Latvia is and, and what it is. So you spent some time there, I understand, doing research. Yes, yeah. I uh, Once the novel started, started really going, I realized that it was almost impossible at that time to get uh, uh, the proper, uh, proper information, the proper research done on this side, on this side of the Atlantic. Um, so I moved to, to Riga uh, and lived there for 16 months uh, researching the novel and uh, journeyed to every place depicted in the book, uh, talked to historians, talked to museum curators. Uh, in the later parts of the book, I even talked to uh, descendants of people that were involved uh, with the actual Latvian riflemen and in World War I and World War II. Uh, to try to get a real feel for it and to turn it from an abstraction to uh, something that uh, I could really understand as a foreigner or at least come as close as possible. Uh, and then I lived another year in Moscow, studied at Moscow State University uh, also to add my Russian, learn some more Russian to get an understanding of Russian history and try to get a Russian perspective so that my book was a little more balanced. Uh, so, yeah, it was a, a three-year project just uh, researching and writing this book. That's quite an investment of time. What was that like for you, going from Maryland to Latvia? Did you speak Latvian? I took a few Latvian lessons, but uh, not to any functional, you know, functional way. Uh, it was fascinating. You know, it was quite an experience. You land in a, a city, that you, in a country. You don't know anybody. Um, I got myself an apartment in the center of the city, began to write and research. Um, it was daunting, but incredibly fascinating at, a time, at the same time. I, I can say it was one of 
best experience of my life. And when I began to talk to the Latvian people and what had happened in their country, um, you know, the, the people involved and, and the tragedies involved become very, became very real. And I realized, you know, as I said, I'm a foreigner, but at least uh, by living here, uh, maybe I can impart my experiences back to the English-speaking world uh, as accurately as, uh, as possible. Now, I have never been to Riga, but I do know about it a little bit because I um, am a specialist in the time of Ivan the Terrible, and Riga was then one of the great trading posts. Mm-hmm. But I, it's a very beautiful city in pictures. Is that your experience of it? Gorgeous, absolutely. Uh, fantastic architecture, uh, largest old town in the Baltics. Um, I feel it's, it's a neat mixture of, of, of German... Russian, Swedish, and native Latvian sort of feel to it is a stunning place. If you haven't gone there, you must go there. It's great. And, of course, it has white nights and wonderful beaches in the, in the summer, so you can't beat it. It's great. <laughs> That's great. So that brings us to your book. Um, how did you go from this, I mean, three years of research is an enormous quantity of information. How did you go from there to distill it into the life of uh, your hero, Victor Rooks? Uh, well, that was the challenging part is, you know, you do so much research and you spend so much time whittling it down into, into the best possible uh, novel. Actually, editing the book took longer than writing the book. And, um, you know, uh, I chose the ca- character of Victor because he, he was a man that's sort of in the middle. He was, uh, he touches on all the major events of that period. And that's also why I chose to make it a novel, a work of historical fiction, rather than uh, narrative nonfiction. Uh, by making my protagonist a, a fictional character, I could make sure that he was at all the key events, and I was at full sway to, to give my uh, interpretations of events through his eyes. Um, and I think, that, I think that worked out really well. Uh, as I said, the character's sort of in the middle. He's a... He's a, a German aristocrat uh, stuck between uh, first Kaiser's Germany and then later Nazi Germany uh, on one side and first Tsarist Russia and then later the Soviet Union on the other side uh, between the landed classes of his birth and the, the revolutions, the various revolutions and social upheavals that took place in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and so he's sort of like a cork uh, on the water and bobbing around, uh, pulled in, in all different sort of directions. And I thought that was interesting uh, to try to give a perspective of a man who is not a great man, not some fantastic leader, but a man just trying to survive, who, is in, who would interpret these events at the sort of ground level, uh, where to him soldiers walking down the street were exactly that, soldiers walking down the street. It didn't necessarily mean anything uh, uh, more to him than that, other than a, as, a, as a way of trying to survive. But of course, as the novel progresses, he becomes more and more aware of what's happening in his world. And I, I hope that the reader will follow him as Victor's, uh, Victor's uh, consciousness sort of expands. Yeah, when we first meet him, um, as I will have mentioned in my introduction, he is uh, 11 years old, and he is living in what is then the Imperial Russian province of Courland, uh, which eventually becomes part of Latvia, right? And he, you mentioned that he's German. Um, 
I think people may not... Um, he's a Baltic German, is, is what he's known as to Russian specialists. But can you explain to people what that means, what, he's, what his family is doing there? Uh, sure. His, his family is descended from uh, crusaders who came, who came to uh, the area that is now Latvia. <clears throat> it landed in Riga uh, 700 years earlier. And they were bringing Christianity to this area. And to sort of make a long story short, they were rewarded for bringing Christianity by land. And the people that they converted to Christianity, the native Latvians, uh, basically became the serfs on their land. And over time, these, um, uh, these, these, the descendants of these crusaders ended up uh, as a sort of vassal state to the Russian Empire and paid their tributes back to the Russian Empire. So you had this situation at the turn of the 20th century where you had German overlords uh, basically running the countryside for the Russian Empire, paying tributes to the Russian Empire, supported by the Russian army, and underneath this was the in indigenous Baltic peoples, in this case the Latvians, uh, and they had... Um, sort of stratified society even more than other parts of the Russian Empire because of this. And uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, you began to see a lot of uh, nationalism and the birth of, birth of Latvian consciousness. And when you throw that in with all the other revolutions that were happening in 1905 throughout the Russian Empire, uh, it began to sow the seeds of, uh, of the later conflicts. Yeah, it's completely unfair, but I think if people have much sense of the Baltic Germans, it's possibly because they've seen the Sergei Eisenstein film, Alexander Nevsky, and these are the guys riding around with big buckets on upside down on their heads and these wonderful horns and things coming out. Um, and they're portrayed as the bad guys, although, of course, under the, particularly under the later imperial system, you know, they were a fairly important part of the imperial order, um, these Courland Germans and Latvian Germans. And as a result, they became identified, in a sense, with the oppressors, I suppose. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. If you ask the average Latvian at that time who the oppressors were, they would say the Baltic Germans first and the Russians second, uh, you know, because they were running these big estates, because they dominated uh, the economies of the cities, such as Riga. Um, and, you know, obviously from my character Victor's point of view, he's just doing what his family's always done. He's just a, he start, begins the novel, he's just a youth uh, on one of these landed estates. And he doesn't really know the Latvian people in any, way, in any capacity other than as workers on his estates. And part of the novel, the character development of, of Victor is how he goes from uh, perceiving them strictly as worker to friends and later actually falls in love with the Latvian so tell us, what does he see in that initial scene that I set up in the introduction? Uh, he goes out into the woods and he sees the Latvian people, uh, the term is mumming, through the night. And that is a, uh, um, a tradition where they dress up in, in fantastic costumes and go sing, uh, sing songs uh, in the wintertime, uh, basically through, at the Christmas time. Uh, the tradition predates Christmas by long. It's really a pagan tradition, but it's come to be sort of equated as, as a holiday tradition in Latvia and still performed today. Um, Victor goes out and he sees these people. 
they're all dressed up. He can't identify them. He wonders, you know, are some of these the house, my house servants? Are some of these the workers? Could who these people be? And he doesn't know why they're doing it, but he's fascinated by it. And he finds it more interesting than sort of the stuffy aristocratic ball that his family is throwing for Christmas. And that's sort of the first step to show that, that Victor is more interested in the world around him than, say, some of his uh, other people in his family or in his class. Um, and then his brother, Ottomars, he shows up and uh, whisks uh, Victor home because he's fearful that uh, some of the Latvians might get drunk and do something. And there have been some problems. And that's the first hint to Victor that uh, you know, everything's not ideal in the country that he lives in, that things could change. Uh, and that's sort of the, the difference between the two characters, is, is Victor is a man searching for something, while Ottomars is a man that uh, he views the world in a very realistic sort of way, almost to the point of later in his life evolving into an opportunist. And that, um, I think we should call it a relationship, rather, um, to, to a sense it's a rivalry, because brothers uh, or siblings in general do tend to have a rivalry, but there, there's a great love between Victor and Altamars also, um, and that's a, one of the two major relationships, I think, that runs through the novel. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it's a sibling rivalry, but also a, a very strong love. Um, Ottomars genuinely, genuinely cares, of course, for his younger brother, and he, he, he mentors them, uh, but they have been very, and tries to protect him. In, in some ways, uh, the, the main plot of the novel, other than the history behind it all, is, is Ottomars trying to, to, to protect Victor. And, uh, but Victor, I, as his ideas begin to change, that puts him in conflict with uh, the view of Ottomars and what Ottomars thinks Victor should be doing in life. And so you have this sort of uh, big brother, little brother, uh, realist versus uh, what we'll call them less realist uh, conflict going on. But at the heart, they're all these brothers. And so whenever they have issues, you know, they try to get through it. But uh, they're living at a time when the situation can divide brothers, and I think ultimately, to a certain extent, it does, without revealing too much of my plot. Uh, yes, and again, without giving away your ending, I have the sense that Victor's um, sense of himself as being always the younger brother, the one who's told what to do, the one who's never quite as uh, on top of things, who's not as, I wouldn't say not as successful, but he's not successful in the same way. He's as Ottomars, that that's the internal, conf- you know, novels have external conflicts and yours has tons, but there's also the internal conflict and internal growth. That seems to me to be the, the central question that Victor is trying to resolve. Yes, absolutely. You know, he is the, the second son, so to speak, and uh, uh, the world ha- won't let him have his, his choice in life. You know, he wants to be an academic, but second sons in, in this era, they go into the military, and he ends up in the military. Uh, and so Ottomars is, to some some degree, a, a, a representation of, uh, of what that world wants him to do and, and to, to direct him into what to do. And uh, uh, Victor is, is, is weaker than Ottomars in some ways, and he has a hard time rebelling. But as the character grows... Uh, he begins to to fight his brother's authority, 
sometimes for sometimes that works out for them well, and sometimes uh, it doesn't, and, and that's sort of the the, the initial conflict of uh, when will Victor stand up to his brother, and what will be the repercussions of him doing so. Um, so let's talk a little bit about. So Victor would like to be an academic, but he at least initially does not have that option, as you mentioned. He has to go into the military, and so he ends up fighting initially for the Tsarist forces against the forces of the Kaiser, who are ethnically uh, the same as he is. He's German. So this immediately creates conflict for him because he's fighting with Russians and with Latvians against Germans, which doesn't, I think, bother him particularly because he identifies himself with the Russian Empire, but it does create a, a conflict between him and the forces around him. Uh, absolutely. He, uh, he has a little bit of a conflict, uh, but not a, not, a, not a large one. He, you know, he, he's, Rick, Victor starts out as a conformist, and he's in the Russian army, and of course they're fighting the Germans, so he has to deal with that. But as you say, uh, he's not trusted. He's not trusted by the Russian officers, uh, because they think he may want to go over to the other side or might be in communications with the other side. And he's very much not trusted by the Latvian officers um, because the Latvian officers at this point trust nobody. They, they don't trust the, 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 the Kaiser's Germans, who are the enemy. They don't trust the Baltic Germans, who are the oppressors. And they don't trust the Russians, who uh, uh, are the overlords of the oppressors. Um, so Victor is in a position where he's in an army, uh, and there's a lot of dramatic conflict there because nobody trusts him and nobody trusts what he, his intentions are. And ironically, he's just trying to do what he views as the right thing. And uh, uh, the, the, the changing of trust actually is, is part of the themes of the, of the book. Uh, Victor eventually earns the trust of the Latvians, and they uh, begin to trust he begins to trust them. They begin to trust him. At the same time, uh, his trust in the the old world, uh, specifically the czarist regime and the and the and the Russian army, begins to erode. And uh, uh, then, of course, the question is: Can you trust the Bolsheviks who come after them? And uh, we, we sort of leave that open at that point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um. Now, when we first meet him in 1905, uh, Victor is 11. So by the time the war starts, he's still only 20, right? Um, so he's very young as he goes into World War One. And I think one of the things that would be really interesting to bring out a little bit is that World War One has become kind of the forgotten war. Um, it may change as the centennial of the war approaches next year, but it seems to be seen almost as a precursor to World War II at this point. And World War II was so devastating and so all-encompassing that World War I has almost been forgotten. And yet, in some ways, I think World War I was a much more pivotal moment for Europe, which had been largely peaceful since the Congress of Vienna in 1815. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. I think yeah, I think you're right. A modern modern reader, we tend to look at World War One almost as a you say precursor, almost as a as a as a prelude to to World War Two. It's just the setup for what will happen in World War Two, which isn't, of course, I don't want to call it warfare, but that isn't historically the way you should really look at it. World War One 
in many ways was the beginning of the death of the old world. You know, uh, it caused the destruction of uh, of the Russian Empire, uh, the Hungarian Empire. I mean, uh, everything began to fall apart. Uh, and you see that in the novel. At the beginning, you have these landed estates uh, that aren't really all that different than the landed estates of you know, 400 years before. And by the, by the end of the, the, the First World War, uh, everything is thrown into chaos. Uh, there's, there's death on a level that could, could not have been conceived at that time. Uh, you, know, you have these technological advance, advances in weaponry but the tactics hadn't matched it yet. Americans found that in the, in the American Civil War, where the tactics uh, didn't match the, the technology and you had massacres. Well, that happened to the Europeans in the First World War. And so there was this horrible fear, of course, uh, that it could happen again. But uh, in this case, I think it is the death of the old world, and uh, specifically in the Russian Empire, because, of course, the Russian, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, and then... The Russian Civil War followed, and uh, it was the, the death of the Tsarist regime and the old world, uh, much more than anybody could have uh, predicted at the time. So, and Victor goes through all of that. So when you have all this fighting, uh, supposedly for something new and something better, then you have expectations that those new ideologies and this new form of government will, uh, will be beneficial and that your sacrifice might have been in vain. Uh, and that's the question Victor begins to ask himself, is, this, is there any purpose behind all of this? Well, there are also other features of World War I, which I think made it in some ways a particularly devastating war. It's the first time where you really encounter trench warfare, which was, you know, it's, it's one thing to be on a horse waving your saber, dashing at something, even if it's into the teeth of the Turkish guns, as with the charge of the Light Brigade. It's something else to sit in a trench, you know, with mud up to your knees day after day after day, waiting for the mustard gas and the bullets that, um, you know, may hit you or, you know, grenades to fall in among you and so on. It's it's a different, maybe it's not a different way. Maybe it was always that way for the infantry and the difference is that the, there were more infantry, but... You do get the sense of World War One that it was a new experience of warfare, in some ways. Surely, strictly in war terms, yeah, of course. Uh, you mentioned the trench warfare. Uh, yeah, that was the that was the development. Of course, mustard gas. I mean, so many things: uh, tanks, uh, airplanes, zeppelins. Uh, all these came. The in 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 particular to this novel, the Germans uh, fighting the Latvian riflemen. Had to into, had to develop a new form of warfare called the lightning warfare. The Blitzkrieg was invented to push the Latvian riflemen out of Riga. Oh, really? I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, and uh, that was the first time it was ever used in mass when the the Latvian riflemen were finally pushed out of Riga, and uh, uh, that, of course, is is the 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 great innovation at the beginning of the Second World War, the Germans with their Blitzkrieg warfare. So uh, you can see what's coming, in, <clears throat> excuse me, what's coming in. And also you get, uh, you get the, the beginning, the use of uh, smaller unit tactics. You know, at the beginning, without going on about warfare forever, at the beginning of these wars, you would have an officer telling somebody to fire at a certain angle at a certain time. And uh, as the weapons got 
quicker and reload rates got faster, soldiers became more independent, relatively speaking, of their commanders. And this fit in with uh, some of the ideas that were going on in terms of the, the lower class, the common soldier having more autonomy, just like the common worker should have more autonomy. And uh, there's a parallel there. And I think, I think it's touched on in the novel, but uh, certainly you can sort of feel it. For Latvia in particular, this must have been a, a very ambiguous or ambivalent time because on one hand, it, Latvia was a battlefield essentially throughout the entire period of your novel, not always literally shooting, but you know, it, it was a constant, uh, it was in the middle of constant struggle, mostly between Russia and Germany for control. And yet there was this short period of independence. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I'm not sure that's really familiar to most of the people who will be listening. Sure. Uh, Latvia, Latvia became independent uh, of, of, of Russia, coming Soviet Russia, in, uh, in 1921, and was, uh, was uh, independent for almost 20 years until it was reoccupied by Stalinists. Stalin Soviet Union, uh, and that was quite a nice time. I mean, the economy uh, worked very well. Uh, it was backed by the British and the Americans, who wanted to make sure that they had free states between the Soviet East, uh, that they had a buffer zone, and um, uh, it had a very nice uh, economy. And as a matter of fact, when the Soviets occupied uh, uh, Latvia for a second time. The Americans and the British never uh, never recognized that occupation. So technically, even though the Latvia became part of the Soviet Union and the Russians put up uh, a uh, puppet government, uh, the United States never recognized uh, Latvia's inclusion into the Soviet Union. Um, you know, that time was a was the first time in their history that the Latvians had had, had their own country in the 20s and 30s. Uh, they'd always been under either the Russians or the Germans or the Swedes, uh, to some extent the Poles and the, and, and the Lithuanians. Um, and for them, it was really a, a time for uh, you know, producing uh, their, own, their own art, their own self-identity. And so that by the time the Soviets came back in 1940... Um, there was no doubt that uh, Latvia would be a very difficult place to occupy. And as a matter of fact, if you, I read a poll of Soviet officers in the 1980s of what was the greatest threat to the Soviet Union. <clears throat> it wasn't the United States or Afghanistan. The number one was Latvia. And the, the Latvians didn't want to be part of the Soviet Union. And uh, that sort of militancy comes back to how they retreated and what happened to them during, during the, the second occupation, which is depicted at the, at the end of the book. Now, that moment of independence is also part of Victor's story. But before we get there, I would like, first of all, I'd I'd like to invite you, if you have a particular passage from the book that you'd like to read, uh, to read it. But also, I would like to talk either in context of that excerpt or afterwards about how Victor gets from being in the Tsarist army in World War I to supporting Lenin uh, in 1917 and 1918. Um, So... I'm going to turn it over to you and let you decide what you want to do with that. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll explain how he gets to um, 
support the, the, the Bolsheviks uh, first, I guess, and then I'll go to the passage. Um, <clears throat> uh, Victor is put into the, into the, to the Russian army, and uh, he, he, lost, he loses everything he has prior to this in the failed revolution of 1905. Uh, his family loses everything to a failed Latvian rebellion. So he's very antagonistic towards the Lat- Latvian ethnicities, even though they're part of the same army as him. And he's basically sent to a battalion uh, of Latvians to spy on them uh, to see if there are uh, uh, any people that are considering a Latvian nation or anybody that's being tempted by the Bolsheviks and similar sort of revolutionary groups. Uh, As he does so, though, being part of this Latvian battalion, he begins to slowly view the Latvians less as, as workers but more as equals. Uh, he becomes friends, tentative friends with several of the other officers. He sees one that is highly capable, in fact, is obviously more capable than himself, and he begins to ponder that. Uh, and then, of course, they are treated very poorly by the Russian officers and the Russian superiors. Uh, the moment that really sort of changes Victor, besides the sort of building friendships, is what's called the Christmas Battles, and that's in... Uh, late 1916, early 1917, December 1916, January 1917. Uh, these were an offensive against the, the, the Kaiser's Germans uh, in, in Latvia. Uh, Latvian opened up a seven-kilometer um, seven kilometer opening in the German lines, and uh, they pushed back the Germans considerably. And what had been as you had mentioned, trench warfare. There had been a long time of just sitting there. Now they had opened up the lines. And uh, uh, during this massive offensive, uh, the Russians, the Siberian Corps that was supposed to support the Latvian battalion, refused to enter the battle. And they, so the Latvians got no support. And so this great offensive where they had pushed the Germans back ground to a halt, and the, the Latvians barely got back to their own, own land, uh, own lines, uh, and they lost 9,000 men. And at that point, the, it sort of dawns on Victor that the Russians don't really, aren't really willing to die for this land. Uh, the only people that are willing to die for the land that he was born in are the Latvians themselves. And he, and he begins to have a lot of empathy and sympathy for them and begins to look at the Russians, just like he looks at the Kaiser's Germans as foreign, as foreign powers that are... Uh, uh, abusing his homeland, and that puts him in league with the Latvians. And ultimately, the Bolsheviks, sensing that the Tsar's army had treated the Latvians so poorly, and yet the Latvians have been so innovative, comes to them and says to the Latvians, uh, "You know, we want you to start the Red Army, and we want to put you ahead of the Russians." And and Victor, even though he never really supports communism, he does support friendship, and so he's sort of pulled along with his friends. Plus, the, the country is in such chaos that the only place he can survive is in an armed unit. That's the only way you can live. And so he goes where he has friends. And that puts him, ironically, this landed German aristocrat, in, uh, in Len- what's called Lenin's harem, uh, which was the Latvian riflemen that were closest to Lenin and ultimately, ultimately guarded, uh, guarded the Kremlin. And uh, so you find this German aristocrat by hook or by crook ends up uh, 
ends up guarding the Kremlin, supporting the communists when he was first put in the army to hunt communists. And I liked, I liked that irony and that twist of, of fate. Mm-hmm. It, yes, it very much captures, I think, the not just the sense of the book, uh, but also the sense of the history. I mean, that, that this this kind of thing is happening, that where people can begin, you know, so much is going on outside uh, that is catching people up in these grand world events that you can begin as a supporter of the Tsar and you can end up as an old Bolshevik, in effect, which is what um, what ultimately happens to many of the riflemen and to all of the communists in the period um, who were the original supporters of the revolution. I won't go further than that because I don't want to get into um, Victor's own fate. I think people should read the book to find that out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, did you have a passage that you would like to read? And then we'll talk about what happens to Victor after the war. Um, yeah, sure. The, the, the passage that I had planned on reading was actually after the war. So oh, okay. So maybe we should talk about that first then. Um, so after the war and after being a Red Rifleman and uh, a member of Lenin's harem, which is a wonderful title, although it's a little inappropriate since the harem is usually the people inside, not the people guarding the outside, but, you know, whatever. Uh, I don't mean that it's inappropriate for you to have used it. I mean that it's an odd expression in and of itself. Um, I assume it comes from the, the period in question, right? Uh, yeah, it was a sort of derogatory term. Very, it's, it's very obscure. I only found it in one or two history books when I was reading it back in Riga. And I thought, oh, what an interesting, unusual thing. And it was a derogatory term, meaning these men were always around Lenin. Uh, they were subservient to Lenin. Uh, you know, the, Lenin, the Latvian riflemen uh, would not have liked being called Lenin's harem. And I mentioned only once or twice in the book, and I think even then they're not saying it in a proud way. Um, but I like the irony in that, you know, a harem, uh, the master of a harem may profess love, but he's really just using these women. Uh, and uh, I think Lenin and the Bolsheviks you know, promised the Latvian riflemen many things, but as we know in Stalin's purges, uh, they were discarded when they weren't used needed either. So I thought there was a, a, a terrible, uh, ironic uh, parallel there. No, I agree. Absolutely. It's a great title for starters. And in addition to that, it is, um, as you say, it, it really does capture the relationship between Lenin and the Latvian riflemen in a way that is perhaps uncomfortable for both sides, but nonetheless appropriate. Or at least it's understandable the way that you put it. I'm glad that you explained it. Oh, okay, great. Um, so after the war, uh, and after having been a member of, the, of Lenin's harem, uh, Victor returns to Riga, and he, at this point he falls in love with a woman named Kaiva, who is herself Latvian. And this upsets his family no end. Um, can you tell us about her and um, her, why she, what it is about her that bothers Victor's family, and then why he sticks with her? Because he does, despite everything, and certainly despite his family's opposition. Sure. Uh, Kaila is, uh, is a Latvian woman. She, she, is a, she is the younger sister of uh, another Latvian rifleman that Victor served with, and he got to meet her through him. Um, she and her family were displaced during the First World War. 
uh, and so they've returned to, to Riga without uh, any money, uh, and so the character of Kaiva is has sort of reevaluated uh, how she views the world, and she's an ardent communist. She sort of believes in idealized communism, uh, you know, the sort of communism where everyone is equal and everything uh, is shared, and uh, less about bloody revolutions and less about you know getting rid of the aristocrats, uh, and, and more about the concept of equality, and more about the concept of equality for women that was also coming out at that time uh, through communism, and in Latvia in particular as well. Uh, what Victor finds attractive to her is that you know this is a woman who can support herself, who has a cause, who doesn't need him. She might love him, but she doesn't need him. And in his prior world, uh, the world of, sort of Baltic aristocrats, uh, the women that he met were concerned uh, with much narrower range, not, not necessarily their faults, the fault of their society, but that's, that was his experience, you know, meet a man, have children, uh, talk about decorating the house, and this was a woman that is not only his intellectual equal, but far more driven than he is, and that he finds that exciting, and he finds her uh, different and, and challenging, and uh, their relationship continues. And of course, yes, as you mentioned, the family is terrified, because not only is she a Latvian, the, the, the people that uh, through their revolution took everything Victor's family had, but she's a communist, an ardent communist, and an unapologetic communist, and uh, so he... he he sticks with her basically because because he is truly in love with her because the character shows him aspects of himself that he never dreamed, uh, and uh, when the relationship uh, begins to sour towards the end of the book, and I won't give you the reasons why, he still is so in love that uh, he he feels that this is in his own way. Um, the sacrifice that he must make to, to stay with her. And I don't really want to extrapolate on that too much more, so I want to let the readers keep it up to interpretation. But there's also a parallel between Victor and Kaiva's relationship and what was happening to the country of Latvia and, at, at the time. And uh, uh, without turning it into an allegory, there are some parallels there that, uh, that I also really like about the character. But she's just a, such a strong character. And, of course, Ottomar's, uh, is at the polar opposite, and she Kaiba believes absolutely in communism, no matter what happens. And uh, Admars believes in nothing to the point of being uh, becoming. He isn't always that way, but, but becoming an opportunist. And and Victor is in between these two more powerful personalities who pull him back and forth. Yeah, I was I was thinking of that as you was I was listening to you speak because. I hadn't specifically noticed the almost parallel, really. I mean, Kaiva and Atamaras are at opposite poles, as you say, but in some ways their relationship with Victor is similar. Yes, yes. They, they both kind of dominate him, truthfully, and uh, uh, they're both trying to pull him into their their own worldviews, uh, while Victor is trying to still discern his 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 worldview, and you had mentioned the ending, that also is what's happening. Victor, for, for better or for worse, finally makes a decision really that is his own. And uh, throughout this novel, he's pulled and dragged by 
forces greater than him, whether it's his wife or his brother, or whether it's an army here or there, or an ideology here or there. But finally, at the end of the book, and that's why I do feel it's not ambiguous and has some closure, uh, Victor finally stands up. Now, the ramifications of that sort of standing up and making those decisions were left to guess, but uh, I think most readers can figure out what will happen. Yeah, I had that same reaction, actually. I, I, I did hear an earlier interviewer mention that the ending was ambiguous, and I really didn't find it ambiguous because that inner story is resolved. And um, the outer story, it's hard to know, to be honest, given the situation in Latvia at that time, what possibilities there were. I mean, even if you had ended it quite differently, the reality is that, well, first of all, outer stories are always ambiguous, except in fairy tales. There is no happy ever after ending. Something is resolved, but then, you know, life goes on, even for characters, and new problems emerge. But... More fundamentally, I think it would have been less true to the situation if there had been... I mean, the only thing really um, would be if he got on a boat to somewhere where life was better, I suppose. But um, And maybe he does that, I won't say. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think as long as that inner journey is resolved, then the book is resolved. There is no real ambiguity as to to Victor's character and the fact that he has grown throughout the book. Yeah, uh, I, I think your perceptions are, are, are spot on there. Thank you. Um, yeah, his personal journey, uh, we have closure. You know, but the, what was going on in that world at that time, Latvia was between Nazi Germany and Soviet, uh, Stalinist Soviet Union, uh, you're talking, talking times of lesser evil, of a lot of uncertainty. Uh, so to give it a nice, tidy ending in terms of the external things would not really reflect those times at all. Uh, you know, this, we, we end the book, the war is, Second World War is really in, in the middle. It's really sort of in the beginning. And uh, uh, Latvia as a country wouldn't become a country again for another... I'm trying to do the math off the top of my head, but uh, you know, 1989, 1990, 91, 91, so for you know, 50 years. Um, uh, so yeah, I think uh, trying to give it some sort of either Hollywood, you know, everything works out fine ending, or the or just making it a, a tragic ending uh, wouldn't necessarily work either. So I, I sort of I like that ending, but I, there's as we said, there's a lot of closure. I think. Yeah, no, I think there is. I mean, it, these two colossal forces are just about to clash on Latvian territory, so it's it's not going to be good uh, for. I mean, whether it, whether one individual or another individual survives, the country is is about to be a war zone again. Again, and you know, uh, towards the end of the book, Victor asked that question. You know, uh, after all the sacrifice, all the all the wars, all the new in engineering, new ideologies and ways of living, you know, foreign powers are burning my country again. And that's, that is part of his, his ideological evolution. That is his country, and Latvia is his country. He's not a German living in Latvia. He's not a, a Russian living in Latvia. He, he's not ethnically a Latvian, but this is his place in the world. And that, too, is some an evolution of the character. So we're coming to the end of our time. Would you like to read the passage before we move on to uh, what you're doing now? 
Sure, I will read a short passage. Um, a little preface. Uh, after, in the second Soviet occupation of of, of Latvia um, in 1940, the uh, Soviet army took away all the, the, the important people in the country and put them into the This includes the intelligentsia, the old, uh, religious leaders, military leaders, um, anybody that uh, anyone listened to, basically, they could put on trains. And Victor himself finds that despite his service in the former Soviet army, uh, and perhaps just because of that, he has now been he he and Kaiva have now been put on on a prison train, and so this is an excerpt from from that part of the book. <clears throat> uh, as the train began to move, panic swept the car. People pawed their bodies, dug deep into pockets for anything, no matter how small, to write upon. Fought over pens, chalk, lead pencils, desperate to scribble a note for families, lovers, and friends. More than farewells, they recorded practical information. The train the hour, the station. No one could honestly say where we might be going. Packed near me was a young Latvian officer, the insignia and buttons absent from his uniform. Even stripped of the fasteners of his trousers, he had bunched them up into a knot to keep them up. Falling against me as the car vibrated, he quickly unwrapped a cigarette, tore the paper in half, handing the remnant to a neighbor for writing his own in the tiniest of letters. Please deliver this to 6971 Gertrudis Ilea, on a train leaving Saturday from Tornkalmus Station. Tell Leva Kukina I love her and will hold her again. Lieutenant Felix Mahomes. All over the car, they shove these notes through gaps in the windows, uh, in the planks or past the bars. Between the boards, I could see the fluttering papers, hundreds, maybe thousands, trailing along the train as it gained speed, like a huge swarm of white butterflies floating, spinning in the air, hovering above every car finally dropping behind, unable to match the engine's acceleration. I thought to join them to add my own message, but by then there was no paper remaining. Every cigarette, wrapping, clothing tag, or book leaf had been sacrificed. And truthfully, the only person I really wanted to contact was herself, almost uncertainly on another car or train like me journeying into the unknown. I think that's all. I'll keep that short. Thank you. I think that really captures the book, and I hope that people will look it out and read it because um, the whole book, I will tell them, is, is filled with descriptions like that. It really takes us into the trenches and into um, the war and then um, into the experience of freedom and then this this new um, oppression that follows the purges of 36-38, which we also talked about um, with Jay Westell, who shares a publisher with you um, in his novel, Stalin's Witnesses. Um, one more question about Lennon's harem before we go on. Uh, what would you like readers to take away from the novel? Is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you think is really important for people to hear? Um, I really wanted to just illuminate people to, uh, you know, what happened in this part of the world. Because, uh, like you said, uh, it's sort of overlooked by a lot of people, at least in the English-speaking world. And uh there's so many stories, both heroic and tragic. Uh, the story of the Latvian riflemen, um, you know, they, they start, here you have this little country, and yet they eventually they pay, play, to a certain extent, kingmakers for the Soviet Union, what would, what would, what would become the Soviet Union, 
you know, the largest country on earth. And, uh, uh, I, and then how are they rewarded and how are their people rewarded? So, you know, what happens when you defend totalitarian regimes? Uh, uh, I think that's something to be taken through, taken from. Uh, but also, you know, I think it, hopefully it's a universal story about a man just trying to find his place in this universe, uh, trying to deal with the, the, the conflicts thrown upon him. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the question of lesser evil once again has raised its head. So... Uh, but mainly I would hope that people would learn a little bit about this part of the world and, and the Latvians and the Latvian riflemen and what happened there and hopefully learn it in a way that is entertaining to them because, uh, you know, people tend to to shy away from history books these days. So if you can write it in a way that is interesting and gripping, then uh, maybe you can sneak in the learning underneath. So, but I hope so. Yeah, well, it was a very pleasant learning. So uh, I agree with you. I think that's a great... Um thing for people to to take from the novel and to um to seek in the novel um now um people may not realize this but we are talking to you in ukraine uh from philadelphia and the gods of the internet have been kind and uh, for all i know you could be next door but um what are you doing in ukraine uh i am working on uh, a novel another novel uh it's it's set in odessa and it's uh, less serious. It is a mystery novel uh, about uh, two sisters in turn of the 20th century Odessa who think that uh, they may have discovered the murderer that is uh, plaguing the city. And they follow, it, uh, follow him down into the catacombs under Odessa, which are the, the largest catacombs in the world. And it's sort of a mystery adventure that takes place under that. Primarily, the book that I'm writing in Ukraine, uh, and I'm also editing uh, another book that's related to to Lenin's harem called The Second Siege, uh, which is about Latvian revolutionaries uh, in the early 1900s who financed uh, revolution in, in Russia and in Latvia by robbery in in in, in London, and they used to rob uh, jewelry stores and things like that to pay for weapons and books. And uh, it's a, based on a true story, and they ultimately get involved with everybody from the Tower of London guards to Winston Churchill. So uh, that book is uh, in the editing stages, and I'm still working on the the more mystery novel set in Odessa. That's in the drafting stages right now. Oh, great. Uh, we look forward to uh, reading the new books and uh, perhaps talking to you again at some point. Thank you very much for having me, Carol. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Bill. And thank you for listening to our podcast. I am C.P. Leslie, host of New Books in Historical Fiction, and today I've been talking with William Burton McCormick, author of Lenin's Harem. You can find out more about him and his book at www.leninsharem.com. That's L-E-N-I-N-S-H-A-R-E-M as one word. Goodbye for now, and please join us next month for another conversation about new books in historical fiction.